This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 31st of October, 2018. The topic is diabetes distress. On the panel we have Peter Baldwin, clinical psychologist and researcher, Will Bonney, psychotherapist and our lived experience representative, and Katie Allison, dietitian and nutritionist for Diabetes New South Wales. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. Um, Peter, I might start with you and really to set the stage, uh, how would you define diabetes distress and how common is it? Um, I mean, if I start with what diabetes distress is not, (laughs) so it's not a psychiatric disorder, Um, it's not something you'll find in the DSM, Um, it's really something that we study that looks at how someone's adjusting emotionally to diabetes or living with diabetes and the different kind of sources of distress that they encounter. Um, It's surprisingly common in some samples um, and surprisingly absent in others. So we're still trying to understand which populations are most affected by diabetes distress and also the other side of that, what makes people resilient to diabetes distress. So in some samples, it's sort of equivalent to depression kind of symptoms, about sort of 15, 20%. But in some samples, it's up to 50%, um, particularly in younger people people who haven't necessarily lived with the illness um, as long or may not have had the sort of life experience to acquire those coping skills that we all just sort of naturally apply to adjusting to difficult things. And so uh, moving over to you, Will, talking about the lived experience of living with diabetes, can you share with us perhaps what are some of the challenges for people living with diabetes? Mm, Certainly. And I suppose the the first is that the the theory of living with uh, diabetes is very distinct from the actuality, the the reality. And so the concept of taking a certain amount of insulin, eating a certain amount of carbohydrate, having a certain amount of exercise in your life should result in a balanced formula uh, is uh, is quite a misnomer. From day to day, the reality is that um, a difference in air temperature, a difference in stress levels, difference in um, a capacity to be emotionally functioning well, will all impact on glucose levels. And so what worked yesterday may not work today. Uh, If I practice what I did last year uh, and something goes wrong, of course, that's quite distressing because it worked before. Why isn't it working now? And so the the reality is that this is, is a chronic condition, meaning that every moment of every day you are living a fine line of um, uh, having management in, in, your, in your, uh, the way you're interacting with the condition um, or not. And so that can lead to learned helplessness um, where you, know, you just try your best and you, you interact with your condition as much as you can and yet you can't get the, the sort of the stability that you might yearn for. Uh, over a period of time, that really depletes from your, your, your ability to, to interact with it well. So, um, so the reality is that it, it is challenging day to day. And Katie, um, there's a lot of similarities for people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and also some differences. What are the key differences between the two experiences, do you think? In terms of the conditions, Although the names are quite similar and there is those overlap, they are two very different um, conditions in terms of how they come about. So type 1 diabetes being an autoimmune condition 
Um, whereas type 2 diabetes um, being linked to um, risk factors that are associated with lifestyle, but also other risk factors that aren't so much associated with lifestyle. Um, and when it comes to the management side of things, um, it can also differ um, depending on the situation. So someone living with type 2, type 1 diabetes, as Will was saying, there is that kind of um, need to match up their carbohydrate intake with their insulin dose. Um, whereas someone living with type 2 diabetes, it could be that they're managing it through um, physical activity and diet. Some might be on tablets or, or medication, whereas others might be um, also um, taking insulin. Um, in terms of diabetes distress and how that impacts on them, we do see that diabetes distress um, is more prevalent in those living with type 1 diabetes. It's about 1 in 4. Um, whereas those living with type 2 diabetes on insulin, it's about 1 in 5. And those um, living with type 2 diabetes on tablets, it's about 1 in 6. So as you can see, as they kind of go up in management um, intensity, so too does that risk of diabetes distress. And so, Peter, going back to you in the research you've done on you are doing on diabetes distress, you've understood it contains a number of components. Can you talk us through the different components that constitute diabetes distress or the different aspects of it? Yeah, studies? yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. And so this, this is just how psychologists look at it in a research context. So I, I don't want to invalidate anyone's sort of personal experience of it, but we just like to break things down. We like our statistical models. Um, and so really it comes down to uh, four factors for us. So the, the first one is what we call cognitive distress. So just distressing thoughts, fears you might have about the future, um, regrets you might have about how you've managed your diabetes in the past, all of those sorts of things. Um, there's also the emo what we call the emotional burden of it, just feeling overwhelmed, feeling frustrated, feeling sad and angry. Um, there's also what we call regimen distress, which is kind of the more pragmatic end of diabetes distress. And it's really just about the day-to-day the, the -day management um, of diabetes and feeling like, oh, I've got, to, you know, I've got to measure my blood sugar again or I've forgotten to do that or I, you know, I'm finding it hard to stick to a healthy diet and all of those sorts of things. And the fourth factor, which I think you know, a, a lot of people here might find interesting, is what we call physician-related distress. And it's that stress of interacting with medical professionals. Um, and the people that we've had in our study, there's been a really wide variety of the experience that they've had with their medical professionals and their care team. For some people, they've had really positive experiences. For some people, they've had experiences where they would really have preferred a different, a different interaction style, a different level of knowledge. Um, or for people in regional areas who don't necessarily have, you know, in, in a city area, people take the, you know, for granted that you're going to have a GP, you're going to have an endo, you're going to have a care team, but not everyone has access to that. So another important part of that physician-related distress is just whether people can have access to it. Um, and so when we look at the different sources, the one thing that really comes out in our research and other research is the thing that really impacts people's diabetes health, logically, is the regimen distress aspect of things. It's, that just, it's just the difficulty of the day-to-day -day management and feeling, um, you know, feeling guilty because you haven't sort of stuck to a diet the way you might have liked to uh, or the way, you know, your endocrinologist has suggested to you and you've got an appointment with them in two days' time and you're not sure <laughs> how much you're, you're ready to admit, um, all of those sorts of things. But it has, it's really crucial for two things, a diabetes health, particularly glycemic control, 
Um, but also it seems to predict the severity of depression symptoms when people with diabetes do experience some elements of depression. It tends to predict how severe um, that is. So of all of those components, for in our research anyway, it seems like regimen distress is really the key, the key interesting one. And Will, you, you alluded to earlier that, that some of the myths or the misinformation around diabetes can contribute to the distress people are experiencing. What do you think are the prevalent myths that maybe do harm or that can cause distress for people? Well, I, I think the obvious one is, is the threat of long-term complications. So uh, particularly in people with type 1 who are diagnosed at a relatively young age, they may live for 50, 60, 70 years with, with type 1 diabetes. And so the threat, the fear of long-term complications is very real. And where that becomes distressing is if you are struggling to have optimal sort of um, management today, every time you check your blood sugar level and it gives you a reading that is not what you were hoping, it will add to that stress. The fact that, you know, immediately you jump to the cognitive thought of, well, you know, I'm going to end up losing a leg or losing my eyesight, etc. So the fear of long-term complications is very real. The, um, <clears throat> uh, where, where I approach the sort of the interface of the medical model and the reality of diabetes is that healthcare professionals have an ethical obligation to inform their patients about long-term complications and what um, optimal sort of health outcomes can be generated through a particular kind of interaction with the condition. Where that disconnects for the individual is that uh, when they, they discover or they find that they simply can't live up to the expectations of that medical information. So being told that your HbA1c needs to be sub-7, the research shows that that delivers the best long-term uh, health outcomes. But if you've been through a, a period of, you know, whether it's stress or a very difficult time with your job or whatever the cause is, and your HbA1c isn't below 7, then of course you immediately start to accumulate a, a, a barrage of fear around what that's going to mean to you long-term. Um, some of the language with the, the, uh, that we interact with when we see our healthcare professionals is very judgmental in, in nature. Um, that you test your blood sugar level, which means you either pass or you fail. That you have good control um, versus bad control. That you, um, you know, uh, that you are compliant or non-compliant. All of these fail to recognise that the individual is not a robot, that they are a human, and they have an identity outside of their diabetes which is subsumed by living with diabetes. And so the, the understanding, the role of the healthcare professional in pointing out the scientific evidence is very important, but then it needs to be what I refer to as humanised. Uh, letting people understand that this isn't, sorry for pointing it out, but it, it's not an illness, it's a condition. I'm not sick, I just have a condition that I live with. And so making sure that we frame our language the right way. There is no good or bad glucose reading when I, when I check my blood glucose level. That number simply tells me what I need to do next. So if I can remove the judgment in my management or my interaction with this as a condition, then I'm in a better place of having greater power. I'm more empowered. I'm less fearful 
around the short term what's happening connected to the long term implications of what's happening now. So that's, that's kind of a lot of the work that I do with, with my clients to help them disconnect from the medical model, understanding why it's there and why you're being shared this information. It's very necessary to understand the implications. But then do your best. In actual fact, I had a conversation with a, a mother of a type 1 um, uh, client recently and they are a teenager and they are going through all the normal teenage angst and they are rebelling um, not only with their diabetes but normally across their whole life. And she was shocked when I said to her, all you need to do is keep him alive. And she's like, but what about long-term complications? Right now, you just need to keep him alive. Don't worry if his HbA1c is 10 or 12. For now, just keep him alive. And she began to understand that some of the heat that she feels day in and day out isn't actually necessary when you, when you boil it down to what is the, the, the long-term objective here, and that's to stay alive. So, um, so I suppose where I come from is, is that interplay, that, that dovetailing of the medical model and the human side of living with diabetes because we do have an identity outside of our diabetes. We do have lives outside of our diabetes. And it's necessary that diabetes only plays the role that it needs to play in our life rather than completely forming our identity. So Katie, I might then come to you. You work with so many people who are living with diabetes. What would make you suspect someone has diabetes distress? What are the signs that we could be looking out for? Often, the, I guess the early signs you'll see is they start to um, disengage with um, health services. So they might start to, to skip appointments. Um, you might notice that their blood glucose levels are starting to increase. Um, and there's no real reason that they've spoken about um, why you would suspect that would be the case. Um, they might stop, uh, start to... Um, pull back a bit in terms of self-management, so not testing as frequently as they used to. Um, also, there might be even underlying things like um, emotional eating. Um, so all these kind of things could be a little warning signs that they might be showing signs of diabetes distress. Um, and I guess to kind of open it up a, a bit further, when you do see them, it might be a good idea just to kind of ask how they're going, but in a way that kind of normalises the situation. So, you know, a lot of people living with diabetes um, find this area challenging. How is, how is it going for you? Or how are you finding it? Or just asking them how they are. So they feel comfortable to open up and maybe disclose how they're feeling. Um, and then check in with them regularly as well. I'm curious, Katie, um, how open are people to these ideas, to exploring the fact that they're distressed? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, so I often see people more in that community kind of setting, so in group um, education set, um, session, sessions. Um, and to be honest, I think they're, they're kind of relieved when they get asked. So we wouldn't obviously ask in the, in the group setting in front of everyone. It's a bit different. Um, but we do have elements of how important mental health and, and well-being is when it comes to diabetes. And um, a lot of people really engage in that and um, might come up afterwards. Um, so, 
sometimes it's, it's a real relief that someone's asked them how they're going because it's something that they've been struggling with um, perhaps for a while and no one's realised. So um, that, that's my personal experience, but obviously everyone's going to be different. And um, Peter, you were talking before about your interest in adjustment distress. Um, how does that interplay with diabetes, the diagnosis of diabetes? Um, what have you found out there? Yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, an important thing to remember when someone gets a diagnosis that there's, you know, there's their life before and their life afterwards. And there's a shift in identity. There's a shift in who they are. They weren't a person who had you know, cancer or HIV or whatever the diagnosis was the day before, and now all of a sudden they have, and they have to learn who they are um, as that new person. And that can, it's just, it's really tough. And, you know, you don't have to have had a, a diagnosis to live through that. You know, if we're, everyone in this room would have lived through a situation where something happened and then suddenly the world looks different today than it did yesterday, and we've all been through it. It's just, it's just a really, really difficult thing. What we're really trying to do is help tease apart psychiatric disorders like depression that just sort of that, that seem to occur in, in illness adjustment um, but it, it's actually just this, this sort of normal adjustment process that, that on a you know on a DAS on a self-report on a depression inventory looks like depression and actually the person's just struggling and, and I think it's about asking those questions and, and I imagine well, this is my clinical experience anyway I know some clinicians are really um, reluctant to sort of ask the question, how are you going? Um, particularly if it's a medical consult and you've got 20 minutes and you've got to, you know, tick those boxes. Whereas there's often this sort of relief, right? And you can actually talk about all of those other things. And that's kind of the human side of things that I really love. And Peter, do we have a sense of what people need for us to support them through that adjustment? One really important thing, I think, is for um, medical physicians to have you know, a toolkit, a few sort of key questions that they can ask in a consult that just, you know, might allow people to open up that discussion. I think with the people I've spoken to, that would mean so much um, if their, their medical team, uh, you know, after checking the HbA1c levels and going through all of the serology, um, said, you know, so how's it going? You know, what's the hardest part? Of, or what's been the hardest part of this for you? Or, you know, we've got, you know, I see you've got a, a HbA1c goal or a healthy eating goal. What's one thing you and I can do together to help you achieve that? And it's just that, you know, it's, that, it's the age-old thing. It's the connection that people are looking for in each and every interaction they have with another human being. I think that, I think that would go a long way to helping people feel supported, to be honest. There's obviously a huge amount of information that is necessary for the individual to be aware of to be able to engage with and interact with their diabetes. And certainly uh, at diagnosis is the most stressful period in terms of coming to terms with everything that they need to know. Uh, it's not like you get a hiatus, a honeymoon, to be able to learn the information before you're then let loose in the world of diabetes. <laughs> You've got it from the moment you're diagnosed actually before and you need to come to terms with that and gather the information as you go. Some of the complexity comes around now with, with how much better we're getting in, in, with the research and understanding the right sort of tools to be used to, uh, to get um, better health outcomes. You know, it would be helpful if every person with type 1 diabetes had a PhD in mathematics because they need to be able to balance insulin intake, um, calorie burning, 
with uh, counting, you know, the, the grams of complex carbohydrate in whatever they're eating. And, you know, over 37 years, I've got this ability that I can sit in a pub and have a pub meal put in front of me and without thinking about it, know exactly how many units of insulin I need to, to take to counter that pile of chips and a, and a big schnitzel. For most people who are early in their, their lifestyle of living with diabetes, that is a nightmare. That is something that they know is going to cause them pain and grief, both physically and mentally. And so coming to terms takes time. And, and processing and, and integrating the information you, you learn from experience and from literature is really important. And I love something that uh, I picked up from what you said, Peter, which is, is that going on a journey as a healthcare professional with the person with diabetes, they may look to you as the expert who has the medical knowledge but in actual fact, these people living with this condition 24-7 are more experts in this than you are. And so respecting them for the expertise that they are developing is very important. So they feel heard and supported and a part of the team that is helping to get the best health outcomes they can. And so as a therapist, that's very natural for me to do. You know, I am a partner. I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't have your answers. I can help you find them. The medical model who has a 20-minute session and, you know, needs to get through a whole raft of ticking boxes is probably less inclined to do so. So those questions about how are you doing and reminding, looking for the exceptions, letting the, the, the patient or the client know what they are doing well that you see, that builds their sense of agency and their ability to engage with this condition, knowing that there's something that you see in what they're doing that is good and they will do more of that. And that's how you can help overcome, in inverted commas, things like, you know, not, not, not being compliant. Find the exceptions. Work with those exceptions. Give the person some agency so they begin to interact with their diabetes a lot more. I can imagine in people living with diabetes, the light is being shone on weight. Yeah. Um, what is your experience of weight management for people with diabetes? What, what are the challenges and how do you go about helping yeah, them? Good question. Um, I guess in terms of, of weight, especially when you start to talk to anyone, whether they have diabetes or not, um, if they're if they've been struggling with weight, I guess for, for you know years, maybe even decades, they've been often they've been in this cycle of of dieting or restrictive eating, um, and you can imagine what a toll that would place on their mental health, but also on their relationship with food. Um, I know I've spoken to people who have said that they can't put something in their mouth without thinking about how it's going to affect their weight or their blood glucose levels. Um, they can't go, you know, to a, a birthday party and enjoy a slice of cake without starting to feel guilty. So there's this, there's this real, um, I guess, um, impact on on mental health and well-being and their relationship with food when we get so fixated on weight. There's also the danger that the person will start to see their value in the number that they see on the scale, which we know is, is not true. We know the complex, um, the complexity that is um, weight management. Um, and I think in that instance, it's good to take a, a step back and to start focusing on more the food and you know, how can we nourish our body? How can we give our, our body good stuff and still listen to our body for those cues, you know, when we're full and when we're satisfied? Because 
we often also lose a lot of those cues when we start to um, focus on really structured kind of um, uh, eating or, um, you know, cleaning everything off your plate as often we're taught as a child. So it's really kind of stay, taking a step back for a moment, especially in someone who is struggling with, with weight and, and their mental health because we know that um, the, um, that can really take a toll on overall outcomes um, and really focusing more on stopping when we're full and satisfied, uh, eating when we're genuinely hungry and giving our body nourishing healthy foods. And um, is, is it about also adjusting the kind of goals people are setting for themselves? Yeah, I think that's the other thing too, is to be really realistic. Um, often I've, I've had people come to me and they say that they've got to be this BMI or they've got to lose, you know, 20 or 30 kilograms. Um, and in reality, they've, they've been in that cycle, that dieting cycle for a long time. And so it's kind of also... Um, I guess focusing more on on small realistic goals and having those wins that will add up over time. We know that. So, um, and it's kind of making sure that when we are setting um, goals, that they're realistic and that they're that they're going to um, really be helping uplift the person rather than you know have this really unrealistic goal that that they they may not achieve in their lifetime, let alone at all. And that maybe ties into my next question for you, Peter, that, um, you know, we, we often find families getting very involved in weight management for a particular person. So diabetes certainly also occurs in the interpersonal space and has an impact on the interpersonal space, like we was alluding to parents as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the interpersonal distress that um, you've been studying with diabetes? So this is, I mean, the concept isn't new to me, but before sort of medical psychology, my research was in hoarding disorder. Um, and that's a situation in which family members very often get involved. Um, so I'm used to the, the, the difficulty. But what we found in our research was that um, the regimen distress that I mentioned before was really highly related to um, people's diabetes health. Um, but when people were getting really sort of severe depression symptoms, um, that didn't sort of really have much to do with the regimen distress, the problems with diabetes, and it didn't seem to impact their diabetes health. Where it was really associated with was this interpersonal distress, which was really just the sort of perceived level of support that they've got um, and the level at which they feel like the people in their lives um, understand what they're going through. Um, and I think it's just, it's just such a tempting thing, isn't it, when you've got someone who you love and you care for who's struggling with something, it's just our default mode is a problem-solving mode. Um, and as, you know, sometimes even as clinicians, our default mode is a problem-solving mode, especially when you've got, you know, like five minutes left and you want to fix the problem. Um, and I think family members just go into that mode. Um, but in some cases, or some of the people that we've spoken to anyway, it, it just, it's very invalidating for them. They don't need their family members to come in and fix the problem. What they need their family members to do is understand and support them through the problem. A really important part of that is listening to what support they need um, and providing them with that. And if it's just they just need you to understand that today's really bad um, or they, they are really struggling with fears about what's going to happen in the future or they're struggling with guilt about what they've done in the past, what they've you know, eaten or not done in the past week or their upcoming appointment with the endocrinologist, if that's all they need, they don't need to solve the problem, um, then I think that that could go a long way 
to supporting people better. Well, I'm interested, um, we're talking a lot about diabetes distress, but overall the, the whole relationship between mental health and diabetes, um, what have you understood of that kind of connection and what do we need to make of that? So there, there is some research that, um, that was done by the uh, Jane Spate and her group in Melbourne um, looking at diabetes, distress, depression, etc., and the, the impact of that on the individual's ability or their capacity to engage with their condition. And so, of course, if, if you are experiencing distress or you are becoming depressed, then your ability to be proactive and engage in the, the, the management of your condition is going to be depleted. And that, of course, then causes a spiral effect um, and that learned helplessness outcome. So, so the two are, are very directly correlated. I just want to go back to something that Peter mentioned. I, um, there are a number of social media support groups uh, for people with diabetes, both, and some of them are specialised, type 1 versus type 2. In monitoring those groups for the predominant messaging that I hear, there is a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of anger among people who live in particular with type 1 diabetes because of the stigma that's associated with this condition. And then the second cause of great vitriol is when random strangers, or not necessarily strange, but not necessarily family members either, will see you eating something and say, oh, should you be eating that? And that causes a huge amount of distress for the person with diabetes. As you said, it's invalidating. It takes away the fact that they are a young adult or an adult and they are fully functioning and have a brain. Um, you know, insulin has got to the point now where we can eat whatever we like as long as we take an appropriate amount of insulin to counteract. And so on the weekend, my 10-year-old had his birthday party and I ate more butterbeer, drank more butterbeer, it was a Harry Potter party obviously, <laughs> than I thought was humanly possible. And I was injecting unit after unit of insulin to counteract the butterbeer, which was basically pineapple and goodness knows what other kind of juices. And it was fine. It was perfectly fine. It's not something I would do every day. But on special occasions, I can do this and my health outcomes will not be impacted. So, so I like to be able to uh, decide what I will eat when I eat it. And I don't need other people to let me know what I should or shouldn't be eating. And I think that's really important for family members to understand. This is about agency, about respecting the capacity of the individual to make the decisions and pay the consequences for the decisions they make. And if we let go of you know, recognising that we can't control people with diabetes, they're having enough trouble, in inverted commas, controlling their diabetes as it is, we need to give them some air, some space, to be able to have some trial and error to work out what works for them and, and gives them the balance of good health outcomes alongside living a complete and rich life. The other thing I'd add is we know that peer support is also really important and I guess um, group education and a lot of the programs that we run are group education for people living with diabetes but they often bring a partner with them or uh, a carer with them. Um, maybe they're the one who does the shopping or the cooking um, or that they just want to know more about the, the condition as well so that they're educating themselves so they can help support um, uh, their, their important person in their life. Um, there are diabetes um, support groups that are around on the Diabetes New South Wales and ACT website. You can see the ones that are listed as well. Um, but even just coming to those group educations, they meet other people in a similar situation, whether it's 
the, the support person or whether it's the person living with diabetes as well. We know that that plays an important role. First of all, thanks for sharing your knowledge today. It's been really insightful. I learned a lot. Um, following up on that question, with social media, um, do you think that can be a source of support overall? And by that, I mean mainstream social media like Facebook, you know, Instagram, that's popular with a younger demographic. Do you see that as a constructive way of, for them to gain confidence and manage their condition? I guess my thoughts are it can be. There are some really good um, places to go. So Ozdoc, if anyone's seen that on Twitter, they have a weekly tweet um, and it's a bit of a support um, system, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I guess you'd also have the same issues that you would have for any other um, person on social media in terms of you know, um, the type of body image that's portrayed on, you know, Instagram or, or Facebook. So it, there's going to be positives and negatives, but social media support can be another really important um, source of, of support. don't know if you have mm, anything Yeah, to certainly add. There, there are some uh, closed Facebook groups mm. uh, for people living with type 1 in particular um, and those who support them. Uh, it is amazingly self-regulating. So there, is an occasion, there will be occasionally a post that may not be to the point or, or may be a little bit uh, off the mark, but it will be very rapidly closed in around by the other people who are on that, that, that group. Um, one of the groups that, that I, I monitor um, has, I think, now about 30,000 members. So it's people with type 1 diabetes and, and their loved ones. Um, the uh, interaction of the group, primarily the benefit is normalising what it is like to live with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so to read that other people are having exactly the same experience as you are is incredibly validating. It is not what is wrong with me, it is understanding that this is the condition I'm living with. And so in that way it's incredibly helpful. Um, there will always be differing opinions about more various things, who you should contact for in certain circumstances, whether or not there should be medical advice being shared among the group, whether pumps are better than multiple daily injections, what glucometers are the best ones to use. Everyone's got an opinion, but if you approach it with a little bit of um, maturity, you will find what you need and you'll be able to get the support that you need. So it's, um, I, I think overall, um, absolutely quite positive. That self-regulating kind of culture that's happening within the support groups is healthy. I think it's good. Uh, it will stop, you know, if someone's giving a really bad piece of medical advice <laughs> because they read it on the back of a Kellogg's box, it will very quickly be, be caught and, and be counted, um, which then leaves the individual to make up their mind. So I would say overall incredibly positive. Um, the other thing I would just quickly add as well as another form of tech, technology support is um, helpline. So there is the NDSS helpline, which is there during business hours where they can speak to a health professional. So if they do have those general kind of questions that, you know, um, that might not need their clinical um, advice, but it's going to help, you know, calm some of their worry that they might have, um, they can give the NDSS helpline a call as well and, and um, have a little bit of relief from um, the unknown in that sense. 
And Peter, your research has also been about kind of online programs to support well-being with people with diabetes. What's out there? What do we know about it? Um, so Black Dog Institute has an online um, mental health program called My Compass, and in My Compass there's a diabetes health module. Um, and it's not about diabetes, managing your diabetes day to day, it's a really lovely module that helps you think about the things that you no longer have in your life that you wish you had again, the things that you might have let slide or you've developed beliefs that you can no longer do or have, and thinking about ways to build them back into your life. So some of the meaning that you feel like might have slipped away from your life is sort of brought back in in a different way, but all in the context of diabetes. Um, and we know that the, there are self-management programs that are available overseas, unfortunately none in Australia. They seem quite effective. Um, we were lucky to do a, a study with a lot of young people with type 1 diabetes. Um, initially it was meant to be a randomised controlled trial, but we couldn't actually get them to participate in the randomised controlled trial. But what they were willing to do was come along and talk to us about uh, what they want. Um, and I love that because I think sometimes in e-health especially, we tend to sort of give people what we think they should have versus asking them what they want and then building that. Um, and, and that's what they told us that they want was, you know, e-health stuff and all of those sorts of things. So when you are lying awake two o'clock in the morning, um, there's something to go to. Um, and I think what I really, I, I really love um, the online forums, particularly SANE Australia has some lovely forums and, and there's some really great groups on Facebook. Because when you, when you find yourself adjusting to new life circumstances, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're part of a new club all of a sudden. You might not have signed up for it, <laughs> but you are part of a new club or you're part of a new family, a new clan, and it gives you an opportunity to, to meet your new family and, and, and talk to them about their experience. Um, and I think that's just such a really important part of people's health is, is being able to connect with other people who live in the same circumstances. So, well, one of the things you mentioned was around depression and it's possible that depression can shift blood sugar levels or glucose levels. Part of what you talked about, or a lot of what you talked about, was you're looking at your level now and you're thinking, well, what, what, will ha what implications will that have for me, you know, well down the track? So there's that kind of thought. But do, in your experience, do blood sugar levels play a role in distress as such? As such? Um, so let me answer that from a couple of different ways. Uh, eleva elevated blood glucose levels. If I have an elevated level for more than about 8 or 12 hours, I will start to feel physically ill. So by elevated, I mean anything above 10 or 12 millimoles. Um, I will start getting what they call, refer to as diabetic belly. I'll feel nauseous uh, and I will feel physically ill. And I, and I have this mental image of of treacle running through my veins. Like that's, that's the cognitive uh, imagery that comes up around it. Um, uh, the other way to, to think about it, of course, you know, we know from the, the DCC trial in the US, uh, you know, this was, you've got to remember, this ran through the 80s, 90s and early noughties, um, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial. You know, even the, even the name is, you know, it's a very medical model, which, and it was a brilliant uh, trial because a large number of people, long, longitudinal study, to work out long-term implications of managing your glucose levels well. Um, it did show that you will get better health out, long-term health outcomes, if you keep your HbA1c below 7. 
Um, that doesn't, the HbA1c, we've got to remember, is an average. And so you can have fluctuations as long as you get some sort of average that is acceptable. So, um, so it, it, you know, it kind of turned on the head the idea that you need to have your control, in inverted commas, in a certain range with a standard deviation that's very tight. It actually threw that out the window. And so understanding that you will fluctuate, you know, um, and, and, and that is okay as long as you are engaging with it in a way that you, you're bringing it back to some sort of relatively healthy norm. The DCCT trial established the frame that people with type 1 diabetes in particular uh, had an expected uh, li life expectancy that was 15 years less than the average person. There was a study released in 2010, I think. It was, it was collated by the Baker Institute in Melbourne that showed that that statistic has now been turned around. That with the development of better insulins, better testing regimes, etc., uh, a person who lives with type 1 diabetes and the amount that they interact with the medical system means that you can ex your life expectancy is now actually 15 years longer than the average. And so when I ask my clients at the end of every session, what's been most helpful for you from our time today, it's always that piece of information because it removes the anxiety around the, the long-term complications. And then that enables them to lead a relatively normal life with less anxiety around the bad sugar level that has just come up on my machine for the fourth time in the last three days. Staying with, just for a minute, just staying with blood sugar fluctuations, low blood sugar you need to be sort of cautiously aware of, but some people really develop quite a fear or even a phobia around that. I'm wondering what your experience is of that as clinicians or lived experience and um, how that pans out. So, of course, the most chronic uh, aspect of, in particular, type 1 or insulin-dependent type 2 is a hypoglycemic episode. Um, uh, having experienced only two of them in my 37 years, and by that I mean where I was not capable of assisting myself. So I'm talking about a very extreme uh, low blood sugar level. Um, it is traumatic because there is, a, there is a blackout period. There is, you know, it, it's, it's really quite traumatic. So it does instill a little bit of fear of going there. We know that there are people who have lost their um, hypoglycemic awareness and so no longer feel when their blood sugar is dropping. For me, I can sense it miles away, so I can interact with it very quickly. But people are known to literally pass out as the first sign that their blood sugar is, is dropping low. Uh, there are people who die from having hypoglycemic episodes in their sleep and they don't wake up. So it is a very real fear. Um, they know that um, you can kind of, uh, with, with a change in the way that you manage your condition, you can return some uh, hypoglycemic awareness, but it is limited. And for, for many people, they never recover that ability. So yes, there is a fear to have low blood sugar levels, which means that you may live with you know, a constant elevated uh, sugar level, which has its own implications and complications. And by that I mean what I was talking about earlier about feeling unwell. Um, 
The best way to overcome this is simply to check a lot. Check a lot. There are continuous glucose uh, monitors now or meters now, um, you know, sensors that will come up on a pump or on your phone and tell you constantly what your blood glucose level is. Uh, there are sensors that you just simply, you know, wave a scanner over it and it will tell you without having to prick your finger. The days of having to mix up a testing strip in a test tube of urine to be able to work out what your glucose level is are long since passed. Um, the, the technology available today to engage with the condition is so much better and, and makes the quality of life so much better. So the more you are checking your blood glucose levels, the more confidence you can have that you are okay and then you can get on with leading your life. How do you prepare a young person who's got type 1 um, who is being managed by the parents that starts wanting to sleep out? Uh, Diabetes camps for adolescents are life-changing because there's a controlled environment where they get to experiment that self-agency um, and they are well cared for. So I uh, highly recommend that. I know not everyone can access diabetes camps. Are you guys still running the camps? Yeah, so we actually ran one a couple of weeks ago for teenagers with type 1 and we've got another one coming up in January. Um, I totally agree. I think they're a fantastic opportunity, especially if it's their first camp. Some of them haven't been on a school camp yet. It's a great uh, environment where we've got diabetes educators, registered nurses that are keeping a, a good eye on their blood glucose levels, even overnight, um, but also helping and encouraging their independence. Um, you know, they, they have a go at carb counting. They have a go at, um, you know, they even do things like we take them to wet and wild. And it's how do you troubleshoot, you know, when you're wearing your swimmers and um, you need to make sure that you've got some hypo treatment on you. So it's, they learn all these different things about just being able to enjoy being a normal teenager. Um, and I should say normal because they absolutely are. Um, and in an environment that's nice and safe. And so that then when they go to the, um, the, their other camps and school camps or time away from home, they feel a lot more prepared and, and they're starting to um, get closer to that independence. So I 100% agree. I think they're fantastic. How does the person's socioeconomic status interact with their ability to partake in diabetes care and in some of the new innovations? Um, one thing I, I've come across um, is a lot of people aren't aware of their care plan and um, even just how they can access health professionals um, for allied health. Um, and so sometimes even just knowing that or knowing that the, the services um, at their local diabetes centre and how to access it can be a massive relief. Um, so I think that that can play an important role. I think, uh, and my co-panellists can probably add a bit, bit more than I can to this, but also it's important to remember that for some people, when we see them, our priority might be their diabetes management and their diabetes care, but at the end of the day, they're just thinking about whether or not they can get food on the table um, or whether or not their child can take um, a, a sandwich to, to school. Um, so sometimes their, their thought process is just pure survival, whether um, rather than, you know, can I have that extra serve of veggies or that extra serve of fruit in a day? 
Um, so I think sometimes just stepping back and, and thinking about what it could potentially be like in their shoes has been really humbling to me. Uh, definitely um, being aware of what what support services and what um, uh, subsidisations are available is absolutely critical. NDSS is is absolutely critical. You can buy a group a a packet of glucose checking strips uh, through the PBS, and I think that costs from memory thirty eight dollars. Mm -hmm. But through the NDSS, you can get the same strips for twelve dollars fifty. Um, $12.50 will buy you 50, 50 strips. Uh, for someone who, well, I, I am checking my glucose level somewhere between seven, eight, nine times a day. So that will only last me about 10 days. Fortunately, I have the means to be able to not even batter an eyelid. But if, you know, there are, there are socioeconomic, people living in socioeconomic circumstances, for whom that is a question of strips versus other imperatives in life. And the moment that people are unable to access the support that they need, and by that I mean the technologies and the medicines that they need to be able to, to live and survive, then you are compromising not only health outcomes but um, uh, psychological outcomes as well. If I leave home, and it actually it happens incredibly rarely, and this is the point I want to make, but if I leave home without my glucometer, I, it is worse than leaving home without my mobile phone. I feel incredibly vulnerable. And so the inability to have testing strips, I don't think I could sleep at night if I hadn't checked my blood glucose level before going to bed. But there would be people who would have to face that saga on a daily basis. So to, I'm not really answering your question. I'm, I'm acknowledging the reality is, even in Australia where we have subsidised health, that diabetes is an expensive condition to live with. You talked about the adjustment um, distress. Being early on, um, I've had a couple of patients who it's been quite late. They've had the diabetes for years and years. I guess the question is, is, are there particular points within that journey that they're more likely to get it? I guess um, in, in terms of the adjustment, um, you're absolutely, I totally agree. It, it depends on, um, you know, the individual. There are, I guess, those times that it's more likely to come up. Um, definitely still asking regularly regardless. Um, but, you know, if they've got major things going on in their life apart from the diabetes, that in itself can, can trigger it because it's one more thing on top of the, the burden of diabetes. Um, if they do have any new diagnosis of any other health conditions um, or even complications of diabetes as well. Um, in terms of diabetes distress, there's a couple of things you can do if you do end up um, using a screening tool like um, the paid scales so problem areas in diabetes or diabetes distress um, scale. Um, you can also start to pinpoint maybe where the areas are contributing to the diabetes distress. Um, and in terms of where, I guess, to refer on to in part of the, uh, the diabetes team is really important when it does come to diabetes distress, as same with um, the mental health component as well. But doing some kind of screening tool, you might be able to identify which areas are stressing them the most and whether or not 
um, it's something that is within scope and within that you have time for, um, or whether or not it's something that you might have to refer on to another health professional to give that additional support, because it's such a team effort, it's so complex, um, that can play a really big role with um, managing diabetes distress. There are very few of us who are uh, qualified, registered therapists who specialise in diabetes in Sydney. Very few of us. I, I know of four. Uh, three of them are clinical psychologists and myself as a, as a psychotherapist. So we are few and far between. There's not enough to go around. And so I think where the work of the black dog is going to be helpful is to actually bring this discussion into more therapists, to more psychologists, so that they understand that, that diabetes distress and burnout and depression is a complication of living with diabetes. And the more that we get that dialogue going on, then the greater the support mechanisms will be to be there for people. Because I think uh, for somebody who is through the transition, who has got their head around how to uh, engage with their diabetes five, 10, 15 years down the track, what they may be experiencing is burnout. Simply no longer having the willingness to engage with this. I'm sick of this. There is no holiday from diabetes. <laughs> so that, that may be burnout. Mm. And I think that uh, point that you were making earlier about the screening tools and looking at the items, there are items on the tools that sort of speak to the idea of burnout, feeling overwhelmed. Um, and if someone's sort of reporting, you know, that that's what they're really struggling with, those tools can be really interesting. Obviously, we like to tally them up and get totals, but sometimes it's just really informative to look at the items and see, you know, okay, well, I'm not really worried about, you know, this aspect or this aspect, but it's, you know, this one thing that I'm scoring really high on. And it's just a, it can be a really nice way for people to tell you without actually telling you what's going on. And I imagine, um, Katie, I might ask you this, talking to regimen distress, which is like the distress of kind of doing all the things you have to do, um, that sometimes within your role as a dietitian or in primary care, that there might be simple changes or problem solving that could make a big difference. Could you, are there things you can think of that might be of that nature? Absolutely. I think... I'm such a huge believer in small changes adding up to big differences and um, and I think as long as it's consistent then it ends up making huge benefits on health and for it to be consistent it needs to be something that could work into someone's life considering that they've got all this other stuff and we all have all this other stuff going on because that's life um, and so if we take on more than we can handle then it's really hard to stick to. Um, so I guess from I, my point of view, often I'm talking to them about food. And so sometimes it can just be as small as, um, you know, adding an extra serve of veggies to their, their meal. Um, sometimes it snowballs as well. Once they start this, then they start seeing all this other stuff that they're ready to add in as well. Um, or it could just be not skipping breakfast um, if, if that's something that they were doing before. Or... Um, swapping from soft drink to um, water or something like that. Just these little changes which don't sound like much, but if they can stick to, make a big difference on their health and their blood glucose levels. Um, so I think it's really important that um, we're really acknowledging these, um, these wins, even if they might seem small to the person, 
keep encouraging them because it's that encouragement that's really going to um, help uh, propel them into to making more changes and knowing that they can they can do it. Um, it's really, I guess, important in our roles because we've got that relationship with them um, or we're building that relationship with them that they don't feel um, judged or they don't feel like they've failed in any way because that's when they're likely to, to not come back or disengage from the healthcare system. So I think it's, it's really, you know, these, are, these little wins are massive wins and just really celebrating with them as well. What's the ideal mix of health professionals helping someone, supporting someone living with diabetes? Like who'd be in the team and what would their roles be? I think that it's, it's the ideal people, not necessarily the ideal mix. It's people who care, people who listen, um, and people who, you know, as Will said, you know, lots of times, respect the person's agency, their autonomy, their ability to make decisions about their health and their ability to understand their health from a different, different point of view, a different model, a different lens that they look through. Um, and I think, it, you know, based on the people I've spoken to, anyway, if you've, got, if you've got that, then you can workshop what other things you need, what other professionals that you might need. If there's something that the person feels is missing, you know, is it a mental health care worker? Is it a, is it a diabetes educator? Is it a nutritionist? Is it, is it um, someone else? Um, but just having the, the right... The right, the right rapport, right? The right relationship, having room in the relationship, irrespective of who's in the team at that point, to be able to have those conversations, express those needs, and then work together to, to, to figure out what the next step is or what the next person to invite into the team is. Uh, if I think of my own healthcare team, you know, I've got a, an associate professor as my endocrinologist, but he's relatively young. He's, he's actually younger than I am. And he has been more gung ho at trying out new things than I've ever experienced before. And by golly, it's had amazing outcomes for me. So having someone who is energetic, who is willing to try new things is really key. But here's what I would refer to as kind of that expert end of the spectrum of the support team that I have. In the middle of the group then, I, I have access to diabetes educators, people who can help me overcome uh, some of the more technical issues that I might be experiencing and then the psychological support. You know, the, the, the psychosocial impact of diabetes is such that it is, it is a complication of living with this condition. And we need to understand that and address that rather than <clears throat> leaving the individual to feel that they are broken or that somehow they are incapable of living with this condition. They, why can't they do it as well as the next person or as well as their, um, uh, their doctor might be telling them they should be able to do? So. So I suppose it's that holistic approach, uh, a, a care paradigm. Um, we saw this come out of a dive cost study uh, done back uh, prior to 2010, that what most people with diabetes were looking for were people who cared in the health system. You know, the, the, the technical skills are there, they're necessary uh, and, and validated, but um, they really just need people who, who care, who listen, who interact. I completely agree with Will and Peter. I think that that's that's hand in hand the most important. Someone that they feel like they can, uh, they trust, and that they can have those open conversations with. Um, and I guess uh, something that kind of comes back to what we we're talking about earlier with that fear of complications and how that can play such an important role with um, the risk of diabetes distress as well um, is also just. 
um, knowing, I guess, a little bit more about the annual cycle of care through the different health professionals um, and knowing that, you know, um, that these tests, if we have them often, we can pick up the earliest changes or the slightest changes um, where we can really do something um, about um, complications of diabetes and manage it. Um, and so I think that's also can be comforting to the right person in the right situation, knowing that, um, that that's an option as well. So being aware of the annual cycle of care, but I think that what it is missing is that mental health and wellbeing aspect. And, and I think that we can't deny that physical and mental health when it comes to diabetes go hand in hand. Well, I think I'll let that be the parting wise words for tonight. So please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. It's been such an informative, informative and enlightening conversation with so much heart as well. This is our final Expert Insights for 2018. So we'd really like to thank you for your participation um, through the year. We'll be back in February of next year with our next series. And through the summer, have a listen to some of our past um, evenings, some of our podcasts. They're all on our website in the clinical resources section. So give you some nice, easy listening through your breezy summer. And so thanks again for being here. Thank you once again for your help tonight. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, Subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.